Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So why don't you uh, why don't you open up with me please to Ephesians? Surprise. We are continuing our Ephesians study. And as I promised, uh, even though we're working through this uh, quite, uh, the technical word would be systematically, we're going um, and covering big chunks of scripture. I, I said I want to be sensitive to how the Lord leads as we're doing that. And we, we would normally be going into verse 11 and, and that next section, but I really felt led to stop and come back to where we were last week in verses 1 to 10. And, and I just want to share something specific um, that really comes out in verse 3. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. We're going to highlight something specific from this verse, and then we're going to jump into two other texts that are going to go deeper in it. And I, I trust that uh, you'll, be, you'll be blessed. I think the scriptures will come up. If not, again, it's Ephesians chapter 2. You guys with me? I'm not going to waste any time. We're going to go right in. So here, remember, Paul is speaking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. All right? So part of understanding this power is we need to understand that... Um, well, let me say this. First, he likens it to Jesus and how this power was what resurrected Christ from the dead. So in order for him to show us how this power came in our life, he shows us how we were dead as well, not physically, but spiritually. And so he really paints this picture of our condition prior to Christ, not so that we would walk around with our heads held low, but that we would actually come into an understanding and celebration of this greatness of power that was needed and that God willingly gave so that we could stand where we are today alive and free. And there's something specifically I want us to note about what this power has done. There's something that we couldn't do before that we can do now. So let's read verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is our condition prior to Christ, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a phrase for actually Satan or some type of demonic influence. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then finally, verse 3, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so we have this picture of all of us are dead in sin, and what we find is that in that place we're not only following the course of the world, but our eyes get open to an even uh, um, more startling uh, a statement that we were actually under a demonic influence is what it's saying. Uh, so no one was just kind of living their own way, but there was an influence exerted over their life. I think there's various degrees of how that shows up prior to Christ, but nevertheless, if you're saved today, you've been delivered. So if you don't believe in the ministry of deliverance and you're saved, well, then you would not be saved. Uh, in, order, in order, the Old Testament picture of New Testament salvation is Moses taking the people of Israel into the promised land. But what had to happen to get to the promised land? They first had to be delivered from Egypt. So if you are saved today, you've been delivered to some degree. But here's, here's the key that I want you to see is this verse 3, which Paul says that prior to Christ, and we still have this wrestling now, but I want you to see what we were utterly powerless to overcome, is that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And so we summarized this last week that Paul says we lived in bondage to the flesh. In other words, when it says we carried out the desires Remember, desires are mostly, I find, our desires. It's not that the desire is wrong. It's actually a God-given desire. It's that we're trying to fulfill it outside of God's 
God's ways. We're overindulging in something, we're, we're, or we're restricting something, or we're completely outside of his boundaries. And so what was meant to bring life, these desires, now is killing us because we're, uh, we're outside of the way God's designed. And what this says is that we were, it was uncontrollable in our life. That it actually says we were carried by our desires, and the imagery that it's drawing on is a slave that would be carried by a master. And so every single one of us had these desires prior to Christ that we, we could not stop even if we wanted to. I don't know about you, but I've been there. Uh, I mean, a lot of you know my story. It's, it's not just drug addiction, but that was a big thing in my life. I would wake up saying, God, I don't want to do this. And by 8 o'clock, I was already in, in the mix of everything, right? I did not want to do it. It's what Paul says, that he did not want to do these things. But the power of the law was insufficient to really change his heart. But the power of the Holy Spirit is able. So there's a power in our life now. But, but the point is that this is a common description that Paul gives regarding our lives prior to Christ that we were bound to our desires and we were controlled by. We, it was an uncontrollable lifestyle. If you go to, for example, Titus 3.3, Paul says formerly that we all once were enslaved to various kinds of passions and pleasures. He just, he doesn't even like try to sugarcoat. He doesn't try to beat around the bush. Enslaved means we were mastered, dominated, imprisoned, bound, whatever the heart went after, we didn't know how to cut it off. We just kept going and going and going. And I want to put before you the word that I felt like God just breathing on actually was Friday. So it was my one regret is I wish God would have done it a little bit quicker. Um, but I nevertheless, I've learned just to stop and readjust to what he says. But the one word that I felt God just speaking to me that is such a beautiful reality of life in the spirit now and the gospel is that we get to live self-controlled lives. <laughs> It's an amazing reality that we can live self-control. Not about you, but that's not a very glamorous word. <laughs> and so I feel like we skip over it. But as, as much as Paul describes our way prior to Christ as being enslaved and mastered and dominated, he will equally say now that you are in Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can live self-controlled lives. If you actually look back and again in Titus, he says that when Christ appeared, grace appeared. And the purpose of this grace, which really came in, in the body of Jesus, was that it would train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, there it is again, and to live self-controlled. Like this is at the heart, guys, of living a new life. This is at the heart of the gospel and life in the spirit is that you and I are no longer mastered by self. We actually can master it by the Holy Spirit. And this is not very popular. This is not very glamorous. Um, because we live in a culture, I think, that is in stark contrast to this. <laughs> we live in a culture that is marked and gripped by self-indulgence and self-gratification. So we, we ha we're in a culture right now that it's, I will do what I want, how I want, when I want, as much as I want. <laughs> and because of that, this idea of self-control is actually looked as something that's limiting, stifling, restrictive, some would even go as far as say it's oppressive. In fact, that whole lifestyle of I'll do what I want, when I want, as much as I want, um, the sad reality is, is that that's according to the course of the ways of this world. What we now know is that Satan's actually moving that course. And so the sad reality is that people are living in this mindset of I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want, thinking it's freedom because that's what Satan's deceiving them into, but really it's bondage. For there is no freedom without boundaries. There's actually, man, I wish I would have went back into it more. There was actually this fascinating study with children 
They put them on two playgrounds. I don't know. I don't remember enough now to give you. It would be much better. You should look it up. It's a true study. But one of the playgrounds, they put no boundaries. The other one, they put uh, lots of boundaries. And the, the observations were that when the kids played with no boundaries, anything can go anywhere you want. They were actually very restricted. They were very scared. Uh, they weren't sure how, where, what they can do. But those who had set boundaries were free to create. They had fun. They had joy. They knew what they can do. There's something beautiful about boundaries. It's not freedom to be able to do what we want when we want as much as we want. <laughs> I mean, just consider, consider the world we live in and the topic of sexuality, right? It's now, being it's now being presented today that it is oppressive, it's restrictive to commit yourself to one partner in marriage for, for a lifetime. Uh, that's like, no, no, no I'm not going to do that. My freedom is I can, do, I can be with anyone I want when I want as much as I want. Well, I can tell you firsthand from, from uh, Teen Challenge with, with Crystal, ministering to men and women, if you can get someone to lay their guard down and actually share how they feel living a life like that, you will find things like they felt broken, used, abused, rejected, manipulated, violated, lonely. That's the fruit of that, and that's the deception. But God in his goodness has given us the Holy Spirit as a means of protection. We can live self-controlled lives. Proverbs 25, 28 says that it likens a man or woman without self-control to a city without walls. And that may, that, that we don't really have a grid for that type of picture, but that would have been startling to the people of that time because a city's welfare, their, their, their security, their protection, it all hinged on your wall. Now, forget the army. If you had no wall, you had no protection. And when and armies went to battle in those days, they would look for the weakest point of the wall. So if you have no wall, what that's saying is you are just open to every and any attack from the enemy. So God in love, by the power of the Holy Spirit, says you don't have to live a life with no walls anymore. You don't have to just be running rampant by, like the enemy is dragging you all over any which way you want to go, but you can actually live in freedom. You can have life. Self-control, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That means it's a gift from the Lord. It's a gift, guys, that we get to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, self-controlled lives. So, again, I pray that um, you're provoked to see the beauty of this, uh, that this, I believe, is one of the ways Paul is saying that we've been, the power of God is being demonstrated in our life. And my hope this morning is to take us on a little bit of a journey to, it's one thing everyone knows, okay, we should live self-control. Maybe that's not new, but how do we do that? And I, and I hope to break down some practicals of maybe some ways that we've approached self-control that has led us into more frustration. And I believe what the Bible speaks is how you have godly self-control. Because as Christians, we don't just say no. We say no, but we don't just say no. There's something deeper that's going on that God's doing in our hearts. So before we, we look at another scripture and start to really press into this, just so we're on the same page, uh, what is a self-controlled problem? I would define it as this. It's something that you desperately want to stop, but you can't. Okay? It's something that you desperately want to stop, but you can't. If that's happening, there's an issue with self-control. We're going to learn what the Bible says of how God actually brings freedom into that, okay? Um, you know what's interesting is we have a name for that in our culture. We call someone who desperately wants to stop something but can't, we call them a addict. You know what's interesting is the, the Latin word for that is addictus or atticus. And if you trace the word back further into the Greco-Roman period, which is the days of Jesus, they used a word very similar to that, except they used it in a totally different context. They used it in a legal setting. And what that, what that word meant then is that if someone were to come into the court, the court could give an official ruling where that person would become legally enslaved and the property of someone else. 
Once that person became legally enslaved as the property to someone or something else, they called that person, what we would say in our language, an addict. That person was deemed an addict. Why? Because they're enslaved to something else. Addicts today are still enslaved. Addicts are still shackled. And yes, there's the classical addictions of drugs, devices, food, all of that. But I, I want you to know that the Bible, God wants to bring freedom in so many areas. There, I can speak in my own life. I see areas of my life where there's a lack of self-control in, in time, thought life, emotional life. The Bible speaks of fits of rage as a sign of an uncontrolled life. Like, if you want to see different areas of uh, lack of self-control, go to Galatians 5. In, the, in talking about the fruit of the Spirit, it lists out vices that are opposite of that. Uh, again, fits of rage, jealousy, selfish ambition, the list goes on. But here's the beauty is the power of the Holy Spirit can bring freedom and liberation in all of those things. So I, I just say that because if we're honest, we can probably look at some area of our life where we can see a struggle there in some degree. And again, I just don't want you to know that you should walk in self-control. Many of you probably would have known that. Um, but what I hope we see is how, how this happens. What's our role? What's Holy Spirit's role? How is Holy Spirit really changing us? Uh, in order that we would prepare our hearts in day six, I believe God is doing a great preparation work for all the things that he wants to do in this body. So why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, please. And I'm going to look at verses 24 to 27. And again, I, I just invite you, we're going to kind of switch gears. I know hopefully just provoked something in your heart, but I really want to teach on some things here that we'll hopefully um, be able to really grab and run with. So we're going to read verses 24 to 27. Um, just so you have some context, Paul is, is describing uh, himself and ultimately by, by our, our, us being Christians, he's, he's talking about fellow believers. They're likened to Olympic athletes. This is the imagery that he's going to give, and he's going to talk about how an Olympic athlete will operate in self-control in order to obtain the prize. Okay? Now, the prize ultimately is the gospel and all of its blessings, intimacy, adoption. It's everything we've been reading about in Ephesians, that you have good works now. Paul would say, I want to do I want to live a life in such a way that there's nothing, like an Olympic athlete, there's nothing that's hindering me from running this race. And he speaks about self-control. So let's, let's read it and we'll, we'll talk more. Verse 24. But you, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now let's just stop for a moment. Self-control, there's two words there. Ego, which is self, and kratia, which means rule. So what he's saying is every athlete exercises self-rule. They're not ruled by self. They exercise self-rule. For what purpose, does he say? If we keep reading, he says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. So it's unto, their eyes are fixed on a goal. There's a prize that they want. He says, but we have an imperishable wreath, is what he's saying, something even greater. Verse 26 so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. Finally, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Actually means he makes it a slave. Interesting. He says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. One other mark that Paul makes here, he says, I discipline my body. Uh, if you have something like the King James, it may say something like, I, I beat my body. Uh, others say, I batter my body. 
Um, I just want to be clear that Paul, if, if you're not careful with this, this almost sounds like a measure of uh, the technical word is self-flagellation. It's self-flogging. Uh, believe it or not, um, Christians, people used to do that. It's a way that they try to earn favor with God. It's no different than when the prophets of Baal cut themselves to try to get their God to see them. Um, we may say that's crazy, but honestly, many people approach fasting this way. They think the more that they can hurt themselves and deprive themselves, that that's somehow earning pleasure with God. That's the furthest thing from what fasting is about. So this stuff can show up in our life. Uh, but I just want you to be clear, Paul is not speaking about physically beating his body. The phrase here is actually to weaken resistance um, through, through persistence. It's interesting, it's the same word that's used when the persistent widow comes before the unjust judge and says that through her coming, she wears out the judge. What Paul is saying is, I wear out any and all resistance in my life that would keep me from running after all that God has for me. Amen? So the summary of this, so now we can kind of press in, is that Paul is instructing every Christian to essentially conquer their, their desires, subjugate their life for the sake of the prize. He says the runner, his eyes are on the, on the, on the prize, the the wrestler is after the wreath. The boxer, he says, isn't just beating the air. He aims for the chin. Everything is about they discipline themselves because they have their eyes and heart set on something greater. Amen? So there's one main thing I really want us to see is what Paul's saying. Before we do that, there's a minor thing that's important, though, is if this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit self-control, that means it's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that we play no role or have no, no part in a life of self-control? And to that, I would say absolutely not. Um, I think some of the dangers, not just with self-control, but with many things, is that if God is working, uh, the idea is that I'm just going to wait passively till God begins to zap me and take those desires out or change the way that, I, that, I, that I'm living. But that's actually not the case at all. But Paul says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Some translations put every athlete strives, competes. We hate that word in the Christian walk. Striving? There's no striving in your faith. Actually, Paul says there is a type of striving. The word that Paul actually uses here when he says exercises is the same word that we get agonized, agonizamos. It's agonized. Paul is actually speaking of something very fierce that we are called to do when it comes to living a life of self-control. But here's the key. Our fierceness is not by our might. So even though we're laboring, it's not according to our strength. There's a cooperation with grace that is necessary to live a life of self-control. If you just wait and say, well, if God wants me to not do this, he'll just take the desire out of my heart, it'll never work that way. But if you give your yes to what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will see in that there's real power to live in victory. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8.13. He says, if by the Spirit I put to death the misdeeds of the body. What is it, Paul? Are you putting it to death, or is it by the Spirit? Yes. <laughs> it's both. Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13, Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you. Paul would say in Colossians 1, that he toils, he struggles in his ministry, not like a bad toil, meaning he labors intensively, not by his own energy, he says, but by the energy God has provided, which is all power that is working in me. And so the point is this, is that there is a co-laboring in our self-control. Because it's a fruit of the Spirit, it's in essence saying that with the Spirit, something is possible that wasn't possible before. That the Spirit of God now, by living inside of you, is creating an awakening, an ability and desire to live in self-control, therefore walk in it. Exercise it. Live in it. 
But now here comes the key for us is still the question is, well, how exactly does that play out, though? Um, how, how do we see, how do we put to death these, these misdeeds? How do, we, how do we agonize against these things by the Spirit and not fall into this weird trap of unhealthy striving or worldly self-control? Are you guys following me? Yeah. All right, here's, here's the heart of it. Um, I, I believe this, I really do. I believe a lot of times our approach to self-control is more in line with biblical, th- is more in line with the Greek thought of which is when the scriptures emerge than with biblical thought. All right, so you guys track with me. Don't, don't lose me in this because it's really important. The Greek thought, which I believe you see so evident in our church today, is that the way that you exercise self-control is through sheer willpower. They believed that you could, through, the will, uh, through your will and your mind, you could just shut down your emotions. You could clamp down on your desires and wants, and this is the key to overcoming uh, things in your life. So willpower was the way for the Greeks. Um, And in other words, uh, you can just merely will yourself to suppress your wants. Do not miss this, guys, because you cannot suppress your desire and walk in real self-control. Remember, many of these desires come from the Lord. That will never lead to a life of at least lasting victory. So the Greek approach would be just say no. Just learn to say no. To give you a comical example, but this will come up again. Because we're talking about athletes, it's, it's like sitting before a tub of ice cream. <laughs> Willpower would say, I'm just going to say no. I'm just not going to do it. Even though my heart wants it, my heart desires it, but I'm simply going to say I'm not going to partake in it. That's willpower. That's the just say no campaign. In very much ways, this is what's called ancient Greek stoicism, which means that you approach life by enduring pain or hardship without feelings and without complaining. So many of our approaches to living a life before God is very stoic. No feelings, no emotions. I'm just going to endure, no complaining, and I'm just going to clamp down on my emotions as best I can. I've got real desires, but, man, I can't. I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to say, no, I can't do it, and keep living. And you may have some success here and there, but God has a greater way than just that. But listen to me. This thought process is very much evident in our, our culture today because you have a mind, will, and emotions and if you listen closely, you'll find that there is a terrible view in Christianity today over our emotional life, over desires and wants. Why, why did the Greeks have such a low view of emotions, of desire and wants? I don't want to go too far, but they had believed anything attached to the body was evil. They had a very Gnostic view. The more you can get into the spiritual and, and the ethereal, that was better. So they always viewed anything with the body was a negative thing. Therefore, they saw our emotions and anything connected to the physical as negative. The problem with this is this is not how the Bible speaks. Do you know that you have a mind, will, and emotions because all three are made in the image of God? All three are made in the image of God. The reason why you have emotions, you know why? Because God has emotions. God has emotions. God has, do you know God has desire? Jesus said in John 17, Father, I desire. You have emotions not because you are, it's a sign of you being a lower creation, but it's a sign of you being made in the image of your creator. All three of your faculties, mind, will, and emotions are made in the image of God. And here's the other important thing. All three have been tainted by sin. Because the way it's often presented is don't trust your feelings as if I can entrust my reasoning. (laughs) Beloved, you know what the scriptures say? Without the intervention of God's grace, my reasoning is just as faulty as my feelings. For our minds were hostile towards God. It says our reasoning was darkened. 
which means our mind, will, and emotions were all touched by sin, and unless God's grace comes in, we can't trust any of them. If sin is blue, it's not like our emotional life was more blue than the rest. Every single part has been affected. This is so important because if you want to, I believe, have a life of real victory and self-control, you have to understand how important desire is. This is the key. Yes? So what is the secret to a self-controlled life? Well, look what Paul says. He says, look at the athletes. What do you mean? Don't the athletes have desires? Doesn't the athlete want ice cream? Sure he does. Why doesn't he choose it? Because when he puts the ice cream next to the gold medal, he wants the gold medal more. He doesn't suppress his desire, but he puts his desire in the right thing. See, if you put two wants before yourself, what will you choose? The higher want. Your higher want will always win out. Whatever you're most passionate about, whatever your heart is set on, this is what you will always choose. This is why you can't just suppress your desire, but actually we have to set our desire on the one thing that will bring order and self-control to all things in our life. And then when that happens, listen, we're not just now living as stoics trying to just clamp will, but God is actually changing your desires. He can actually change your emotional makeup where you actually set your heart on the Lord and you want him above everything else. So self-control is not just a matter of the will, but it's a matter of the heart, desire, want, being set on the one thing that will actually bring freedom to all areas of your life. That's the key. Amen? There's there's a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Chalmers who says this. I love this. He says, we cease to be a slave of one appetite because another has brought it into subordination. If you have an appetite in your life that you can't stop, you're a slave to it. How do you get free from that? Not by trying to stop that thing. You need a greater appetite to come and replace it. In other words, how do you strip the heart of an old affection? You can't just say no to it. You need a greater affection to come in with an expulsive power. So if you find that your ultimate goal is something is set on whatever it is, the way you get rid of that, guys, is not just trying to deny that there, but it's having a greater affection come in and take over. A greater pleasure come in and take over. This is why I say the just say no campaign is not Christian. We do say no, but we don't just say no. The emphasis is on the just. What the Holy Spirit does to bring about self-control is he will instruct you into the infinite preciousness of Jesus. He will open the eyes of your heart to the beauty that Jesus is, to the, to the endless fountain of joy that he is. And when you begin to taste and see Christ to this degree, guess what happens? Every old habit, every old sin, you begin to renounce and find repulsive. The Holy Spirit's actually not working directly on your sinful habits. What he's doing is he's causing you to see Jesus and all that he is that you find your sinful habits repulsive. You don't want them anymore. What's happening? Your desires are changing. Now, if you say, yeah, but how do I do that? This is why you can't just wait to be zapped like that. This is where spiritual disciplines come in. This is where faithfulness before the word, faithfulness in gatherings like this, faithfulness in worship, prayer, evangelism, even evangelism, which is really for the sake of someone else, the Holy Spirit's going to open your eyes to Jesus as you're evangelizing. Amen? Jesus, when he sent out the, in the Great Commission, he says he promised, and I will be with you until the end of the age. There's a solidarity of Christ, a witness of Christ, that you cannot experience unless you go. I can't tell you how many times I've went, shared Jesus, and I was like, Holy Spirit was like, he's with you. 
and I'm seeing Christ and his love for people and his power. It changes you. The more you set your heart regularly in these disciplines, the Spirit of God opens the eyes of your heart, Johnny shared on this, and you begin to see Christ rightly, and all of a sudden, Jesus is now becoming your greatest desire. He really can change desires, and I promise you, when he comes your ultimate desire, self-control of all areas of your life is the byproduct of that. Amen? Let me give you an example of this. In Genesis, there's a story of a man by the name of Jacob. He's a patriarch. Yeah, God, uh, um, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Jacob is on the run from his, uh, from his brother Esau, who he deceived. And he finds himself working for his uncle Laban. And his uncle is, uh, it's, it's tedious work, it's hard work. But while he's there, he discovers that Laban has a daughter that's absolutely beautiful in the eyes of Jacob. Her name is Rachel. And so he strikes a deal with Laban. He says, if I work for seven years, will I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Can I have Rachel? And Laban says, yes. And so Jacob, for seven years, can you imagine that? Seven years, day after day after day, shows up, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't skip a day, doesn't miss. He's committed. His life is what? It's marked by self-control and discipline for seven years. What's the secret? What was the secret to Jacob doing this? You hear, just listen to this, Genesis 29, 20. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Wow, that must have been a drag. <laughs> no, no, listen to what it says. And they seemed to him, meaning to Jacob, but a few days because of the love he had for her. What was the secret to Jacob showing up every single day? Not willpower, joy power, love power. This is the secret. J- Jacob, Jacob wasn't waking up every day just trying to clamp. So I said, I got to do this. I got to do this. There was a prize before him that was everything. And as a result, the labor that was in front of him seemed like nothing. How could he live so self-controlled? He's doing exactly what Paul said. He had a higher prize. He had a greater prize. And this is what touched his heart. Amen. So I, I summarize. Self-control is not about clamping down your emotions but it's about setting your heart on the one thing, the right thing, that will bring self-control to all things, order to all things. Now, this is important. Please don't miss this. You can, set, you can make many things your Rachel, and it can bring self-control to your life in some areas, but not all things. For Paul says if we are like an athlete, we are to exercise self-control in all things. This is important. You can set your heart on many things, and it can produce a measure of self-control, but not in all things. You say, what do you mean? Think about, think about career success. And you apply this however you want with maybe things you're more tempted to go after. Career success, right? If your Rachel is success in career, you will find yourself being more disciplined because of that in some areas. Go into New York City right now. There are many individuals whose Rachel is career success. And you will find some of the most disciplined, productive, smart people that you could ever find in the world. They, they manage their time beautifully. They steward their finances. They're constantly pushing themselves to grow in areas. There's a measure of self-control that's touching their life because what they've made their Rachel, but they will not have self-control in all things. So what do you mean? Well, what if they're presented with an opportunity to advance their career, their Rachel, significantly, but it will come at the cost of an unethical decision? What if they'll lose their job and someone else will take it if they suppress the truth? What if they can advance their career or they'll lose out on position unless they sacrifice their family uh, in order to get it? What do you think will happen? I can tell you what happens every single time. They'll suppress the truth, they'll cut the corners, and they'll sacrifice their, altar, uh, their family on the altar of advancement. If that's your Rachel, it'll bring order in some areas, 
but not in all things. If working out is your Rachel, it'll bring self-control in some areas, but not in all things. But there's one who, when you set your heart on him, he will bring self-control in all areas. Jesus Christ is the only one that when he becomes your prize, when he becomes your greatest delight, when he becomes the longing of your heart, this is the only one that can order your whole life. Why? I think this, the gospel says this. Tim Keller puts it this way. I love it. He says, we are more flawed in ourselves than we ever dare to admit. <laughs> That's what the gospel first says. But then it equally says, but you're more loved in Christ than you could ever imagine. And when you understand what the finished work has done in your life, when you understand the position that you hold in Christ, that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that you've been raised to the highest seat far above, right next to Christ, when you recognize that, you understand that this is the one thing in, your, in, this is the one thing in, in all of eternity that cannot be lost or cannot be advanced. Which means I would, you don't have to steal, lie, cheat, sacrifice your family to advance your position in Jesus. It's as high as it goes. This is the one thing, if it becomes your everything, you will never, it will bring control to all areas of your life. It's the one thing that you never have to worry about losing. Not like a job where I'm going to, every day I'm worrying. Because listen, if that becomes your Rachel, just using that example, what happens if you lose your Rachel? Everything unfolds, <laughs> Right? And you turn to whatever you can to medicate yourself just to get through the pain. But here's the beauty. Is this is, Jesus Christ is the one thing that will never be shaken. He's the one thing that will never be touched. And your union with him is the one thing that you never have to worry about being lost. And that eternal security in the Lord guards your heart against doing what you would have to do if something else had the Rachel of your heart. You realize, I don't have to do anything to try to advance this. I'm as far as I can go in the Lord. Now I'm just growing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's the one thing. This is where self-control, when Jesus becomes the ultimate desire, and Holy Spirit wants to do that. So one last, one last thing. Come with me to Hebrews 12. We'll close right here. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Here the writer of Hebrews gives us another incentive about how we exercise self-control. Verse 1, Hebrews 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us then lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's interesting. That sounds like everything that we've been reading. The writer of Hebrews once again saying, let us run with endurance. Let's lay aside things. Let's live a self-controlled, disciplined life. That's what he's saying. But now listen to, to, the, to the motive or how we find a, a supernatural grace to do this. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him, meaning consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted as you yourselves are running. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, I want you to run your race just like Paul's been saying we've been laboring. I want you to live a self-controlled, disciplined life, and here's where you're going to find a grace to wash over your heart to do it. Look at Jesus. 
Consider how Jesus too ran a race. Consider how Jesus ran a race that none of us have ever run. None of us have ever faced what Jesus faced. The rejection, the king of glory facing rejection, betrayal, and ultimately crucifixion, and yet he ran it. In fact, he didn't just run it. He ran it as well as you can run it. Here's the question. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus run this race so well? How did he live such a disciplined, self-controlled life when there was so much opposition against him? Was it his willpower? I mean, I imagine his willpower is awesome, but I'm going to just take what the writer of Hebrews says. What fueled Jesus to run this race so disciplined was the joy that was set before him. What fueled Jesus? It wasn't necessarily willpower. It was joy power. Well, that sounds a lot like Jacob. So wait a minute. If Jesus, if your whole, if you were fueled by the joy set before you, then my question is this. What was your Rachel? (laughs) What was your Rachel? What did Jesus not have before the cross that he would have after the cross? Is it the Father? No. Is it the command of the universe? He already had it. Was it heaven? Already had it. What was the joy set before him that when he looked at that prize, he was said, I'm willing to endure shame, humility, rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, because my eyes are on that prize right there. There's one thing. You, you and I were the Rachel of Christ. The gospel is the greatest love story ever written. What makes it so amazing is that when he sets our hearts When he sets his heart on us like that, there was nothing actually lovable in us in that moment. (laughs) Remember what Ephesians 2 says, that we were dead, captive, and ultimately condemned. But he said, as we said last week, I'd rather die than live without you. And what fueled Christ was not merely just willpower, but he said there's there's a joy that's in my heart that allows me to run this race so, so, so effectively. And the more that we let that touch our hearts, the more we're going to run our races for the Lord. Amen? Let's stand. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org. Subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.